The following is a member of the Growler Media Podcast Network. Find out more at growlermedia.com. Comey Snake. Welcome back to Escape from New York Minute, where we celebrate and analyze the dystopian classic one minute at a time. I'm Eric Deutsch. And I'm Molly Balin. And joining us today, uh, a very special guest here. We have someone who runs a website called The Man with the Hypnotic Eye. He is a Donald Pleasant super fan. The website is at pleasance.com. And we chose this specific minute for him to come on because we have some great Donald Pleasant stuff. Please welcome to Manhattan Prison, Christopher Weedman. Yeah, nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's just set the stage and then we'll get into it. We're in minute 66. It starts out with Snake getting up, surrounded by some thugs, and it ends with the president telling the Duke he is hey number one. <laughs> and, it's, it's, uh, such a, it's such a classic <laughs> moment there. Yeah. And of course, it's such a quotable line and one that of all the lines in the movie that you know Pleasance has, it's the one, of course, he's most identified with. Absolutely. Uh, and so in your intro, as I said, uh, you've got this website. You're a big fan of Donald Pleasant. So before we get into the minute itself, uh, let's let's chat a bit about this here. Uh, how, how do you become a big fan of Donald Pleasant? Tell, tell us about the, the history. Everyone's got those actors that they all love and, and that they get into. Uh, why Donald Pleasant? Well, uh, I was introduced to his work, I think, like a lot of people first are back in – this was probably – 1993-1994, uh, watching the films of uh, John Carpenter, of course, uh, his appearances in Halloween as uh, Dr. Loomis, um, in Prince of Darkness as uh, the priest, and as well as in Escape from New York you know, as the President of the United States. And I think it was just, uh, number one, at the time, I was not familiar with the name. And I just uh, really enjoyed his kind of quiet intensity, uh, particularly in uh, Halloween where, of course, he kind of really sets the tone uh, for that movie, where he has this kind of uh, ominous presence that comes in that kind of, you know, introduces, you know, who this uh, killer is to the audience and the kind of the threat that he poses. And that quiet intensity that he has that kind of builds throughout the film, uh, eventually kind of over the course of the series, just kind of morphs into, uh, into madness. And he always seems to be an actor who can be very quiet, but then explode into anger or violence that really... Uh, you know, the flip of a hat. So in that way, uh, he was just somebody who really appealed to me. And of course, uh, after that, I just was interested in um, seeing as many films as he as I could. And of course, he was still alive at the time. But then uh, he died in uh, February of 95. I created the website uh, devoted to him because there's really, at the time, outside of Internet Movie Database. And uh, I don't even know if Wikipedia was around at that point. That, that there was really nothing on uh, Pleasant online. So I just thought, well, I needed to create a tribute to him, and it kind of really just morphed out of that. And uh, considering this was the uh, mid to late 90s, was that like a GeoCities website or something? Oh, it, 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 was, <laughs> it was exactly a GeoCities website. <laughs> and of course, it, it started out real crude, and I just put on uh, at the beginning uh, very basic uh, filmography information, screen captures, and then. Uh, through there, I was able to get in contact with a lot of other people who were admirers of his work and uh, friends that would 
scan um, different stills, uh, supply me with uh, reviews of some of his films, and allowed me to really be able to see all of his films. Because what's really amazing about his body of work is he has you know over 200 films. So at that time, with so few of them on VHS or later DVD, really the only way that you could actually acquire these things were through fans that had taped them off television. So in that way, I just kind of created a depository of information and uh, through there, you know, ended up meeting people who either knew Donald Pleasance, uh, you know, was contacted by some of his family members, um, mm. some of the people that he worked with. And I was able to get a few people to actually, um, um, some notable people to contribute some memories of him. Everybody from um, Charlton Heston, who was still alive at the time, to uh, Adrian Barbeau, who uh, supplied uh, a brief anecdote about her uh, time working with Donald Pleasance on Escape from New York. Oh, that's great. So, yeah, I worked on that from pretty much full time from 97 until uh, 2001. And then at that time, I started uh, working on a book project you know, on him that uh, unfortunately had to be kind of uh, put on uh, on hold. I hope to get back to it but was able to interview probably about 40 or 50 people that uh, he had worked with, including uh, John Carpenter. So in, in that way, it was really just kind of a wonderful time and one that really kind of made me passionate about film, film history. And now since I, that's what I uh, teach for a living, you know, really kind of informed everything that I do today. Hmm. Yeah. He's one of those guys who, you know, he was never a huge star. He was not a, a leading man. He didn't have the, you know, the leading man looks, but, an incredibly successful long career who everyone has seen at least one movie that he's in. Yeah. I, I think he just had one of those kind of peculiar faces as well as uh, those eyes that were really intense. And I think because he was such a, uh, a peculiar looking actor that I think he just, uh, it lended himself to being able to go into, you know, many different roles and I remember seeing an interview with him one time where somebody asked him, you know, why do you play all of these sinister and strange roles? And he said, well, you know, that he he doesn't have naturally good looks. He says, you know, I don't get the scripts of, you know, somebody like Dustin Hoffman. So he says, instead, I have to uh, take what I uh, take what I receive. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, even in some of the lesser films that he did, some that have still have cult followings. I mean, he uh, still gives nothing but a professional performance and ones that are actually quite amusing and sometimes are the best you know, part of the movie. And that's interesting because, I mean, this, this is the movie that's my favorite um, role of his. Uh, but my second favorite role of his is a movie in actually which he plays a good guy, his role in The Great Escape. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, The Great Escape, of course, is probably the biggest movie that he ever appeared in. Of course, you know, has a you know, major uh, cast for... Uh, everybody from Steve McQueen and James Garner, and it was a major, you know, Hollywood movie. And of course, Donald Pleasance plays a very uh, sympathetic role as a uh, a shot down uh, member of the British uh, Royal Air Force who uh, finds himself in a prisoner of war camp, and of course ends up being somebody who is very sympathetic. He uh, forges documents for the prison camp and uh, ends up uh, forming a uh, kind of a very uh, tender friendship with uh, the James Garner character. And it is a, it's a wonderful film. And of course, he's, he's so uh, great in it. And I think it is kind of a nice uh, double feature in some ways with Escape from New York, because you have uh, a character in both that he plays, uh, each one uh, is uh, taken prisoner. And this is something that I think you know resonated with him because of the fact that uh, during uh, World War II, he was somebody who was uh, shot down, 
and uh, was in a prisoner of war camp for uh, a period of time. Yeah, and I, 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 we, way back in the beginning of the movie when he first showed up, I, I, we discussed how he actually based his the way his character behaves in this movie after he's captured on his own personal experience doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, I think you can see it uh, in the minute that we're going to you know, talk about in a few moments, just because of the fact that it, it's really kind of an intense scene. And I think uh, some of that personal experience that, of course, he dealt with, I'm sure, had to inform uh, the characterization to some degree. And, if, uh, and it's just a, such a great moment in the movie. So I was curious because you've mm-hmm. collected anecdotes and obviously have done a lot of very deep research on him. I was wondering if you could share with us a few of your favorite trivia pieces or anecdotes that you discovered <laughs> or were told. Well, uh, I from pretty much everybody that I talked to, uh, he was a hard person to actually get to know. I think he was a bit of a loner. I think uh, because of everything from war experiences, uh, I would assume probably family life, even though I don't know a lot about uh, that background, because most people that I would talk to really didn't know him that well. At the same time, said that he was somebody who really kind of kept to himself. Hmm. So I I think in that way, uh, we don't really necessarily look at him as being kind of this gregarious person in real life that you see, you know, in some of his performances on screen. But I think uh, one of the... um, the you know, best uh, anecdotes I remember hearing was from um, Adrian Barbeau, who did say that when they were filming uh, Escape from New York, that Donald really kind of had a devilish uh, sense of humor and a lot of times would kind of break into the, uh, you know, right before they were starting to film and would actually uh, tell some sort of joke that would catch her off guard. And some of them were, of course, at his own expense. And I believe I remember uh, he said something like, I would have been uh, a really great actor if I uh, didn't have so many ex-wives to support. And he, <laughs> he, he said, I, you know, I, you know, I, I could have been uh, George C. Scott. And she said, you know, he would say this, but at the same time, uh, didn't really say it with bitterness. It, it, he just kind of would say it slyly, matter of fact. But at the same time, she said there was kind of a ring of truth to it. So I, I think there were probably was an element to him where he didn't necessarily think that, especially some of the films that he uh, did because of the success of um, Halloween's, because of the success of Escape from New York, because in the 80s and 90s, he kind of sees him in a period of uh, some lesser movies, particularly some of the ones that he made in Italy. And I think in some ways he felt the films were probably uh, beneath him. But at the same mm-hmm. time, you, you would never see it in the performances. And I think that's just because, you know, he looked at acting as a profession and he wanted to do the best job that he possibly could. But uh, that was one of the uh, famous uh, remarks. Another one that I remember is uh, I remember reading an interview with him uh, one time where he talked about when he was shot down. And this would have been in uh, during World War Two. He was captured by the Nazis. They took him um, into the interrogation room and they opened up his uh his overcoat or whatever he was wearing. And of course had all of these uh, condoms in, the, <laughs> uh, in there. And the reason was because uh, they would put these condoms on the microphone of the uh, wireless uh, system that they had in the airplane that he was supposed to do. And it was supposed to keep the microphone from getting um, condensation in it. And they used the rubber from that. But I guess the Nazis, you know, picked up one of these uh, condoms 
you know, out of his uh, out of his pocket and looked at him and said, uh, "Where you will be going, you won't be needing these." <laughs> <laughs> so of course he did have that kind of dark uh, and uh, sarcastic sense of humor, which I think if you see, you know see it in the performances, even I think in Escape from New York, there uh, there's a realness to it, but there's also kind of an undertone of absurdity. And I think that was probably just something about his outlook. How about does any one of the um, John Carpenter anecdotes he told you stick out, even if it's not necessarily about this movie? Uh, does any one of them stand out as a really good one? Yeah, I think uh, if I remember right, it, when uh, the ending scene, of course, where we have the reprisal of the uh, uh, it's the Duke, you know, I, you're the Duke, you're the Duke. Mm. He's standing up on the uh, on the ledge. And at the time, Carpenter didn't know whether he wanted to have that scene uh, have Pleasance uh, shoot the Duke or whether he was going to have Lee Van Cleef shoot the Duke. And uh, I think they either filmed it both ways and made a decision. But at one point, uh, Donald Pleasance said, uh, just stand back. And he picked up this uh, machine gun and he said it was really obvious when he did it that you could tell that, you know, Pleasance from the war knew exactly how to use it. So in that way, uh, when he's, you know, shooting that machine gun at the end, it was something that, uh, again, using that real life experience, but brought a bit of an intensity to it that I think maybe somebody who hadn't lived through those type of uh, ordeals uh, wouldn't be able to do. Yeah, that is a great scene. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I can tell you right now, just somebody with like uh, Carpenter, you know, having interviewed him, uh, He's a, he's a very uh, nice and cordial man, but he's also uh, somebody who's a little bit difficult to interview because uh, uh, he kind of sticks to the script. Like a lot of the interviews that you see of him, he tells the same anecdotes. And I think because he's a bit of a um, cautious person, doesn't usually verge from the script very much. So he's kind of difficult to uh, talk to in that way. But of course, very helpful and uh, enjoyed talking to him. It was a great thrill at the time. Well, Molly, got any other Donald Pleasant-centric's questions, um, or should we into the minute? Well, I just have one more. Uh, I'm curious, because we've obviously mentioned some of the more famous roles uh, that he's done, but I was curious, Christopher, if you had run into somebody who was unaware of Donald Pleasant's, uh, and you wanted to really imbue them with you know, what stands out as like just seminal work for him, what movies would you suggest to that person? Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, you know, uh, if you've not seen the, the ones that he's most known for, you know, films like Halloween, Escape from New York, uh, Prince of Darkness, obviously you need to see those. And of course, uh, you know, his performance as the James Bond villain, um, Blofeld from uh, You Only Live Twice is very iconic. And probably of all the James Bond villains is the one that, you know, most people know because it was so parodied, you know, and everything from Austin Powers to... Um, the villain in Inspector Gadget, where you only see the hand and the cat and so forth, that it's really very Pleasance inspired. So, of course, those are the films that people most readily think and, of course, really need to be seen. But at the same time, I, if there was a film that I would think that really kind of shows you know, what he can do, there's a small um, uh, European film that he made uh, in 1966 by uh, Roman Polanski called Cul-de-Sac which is about uh, a husband and a wife who uh, find themselves uh, taken hostage in their own home by a couple of gangsters on the lam. And of course, it's a black comedy. 
and Pleasance plays a very kind of henpecked husband <laughs> who uh, who uh, is a bit uh, portrayed as a bit effeminate and a bit high strung. And of course, he ends up being uh, subjected to all types of humilia- humiliation all throughout the film. And it's such a frantic performance. But it, if there's a film that really needs to be seen um, to really kind of see what he's capable of doing, um, that's the movie. Because, of course, it really kind of shows a range and kind of a sense of emotion you really don't see in uh, his other work. But at the same time, I don't want to downgrade any of his other stuff because out of 200 films, I mean, I would say that there's at least 50 really great performances and a lot of times in lesser movies that uh, people just you know haven't had uh, opportunity to see. Mm. Cool. Thank you. This, this this is just a random comment that just popped in my head, but uh, just based on how uh, his character, um, Sam Loomis in Halloween, is uh, named after a character in um, Psycho, it, I, it would have been great to see Donald Pleasance in an Alfred Hitchcock movie. Mm. Oh, I, yeah, I think, uh, of course, I'm sure he would have loved to have worked with, uh, with Hitchcock. And, but he, you know, he, while he never did, you know, I could see him, uh, you know, being uh, very good, especially in some of Hitchcock's uh, later films. There's a movie yeah. that he made in uh, Britain in the '70s called Frenzy. Which, oh, of course, great movie! Yeah, which has a great yeah. all British cast. He would fit very well in uh, Frenzy, maybe even as the uh, the killer. Yeah, but he's a uh, he's a wonderful actor. So I mean, uh, Hitchcock, you know, it would have been great to see him work with him. But he did work with some of the really great ones, uh, as I mentioned, uh, you know, Polanski. Um, some of the great action directors like uh, Don Siegel, who did Dirty Harry, directed him in an action movie called um, Telephone with Charles Bronson. So really, it, he's, a, he's a great person if you ever do the, uh, the Kevin Bacon um, <laughs> degrees because he really worked with everybody. So Pleasance is usually uh, considered to be you know, one of the center marks to be able to connect uh, you know, so many directors and filmmakers together. Sure. All right, let's jump into the minute here, um, filled with this Donald Pleasance knowledge. Uh, before we get to him in this minute, we do have Snake uh, waking up here with everybody surrounding him. As we discussed with our previous guest, we finally do see the people holding the crossbows on Snake <laughs> as he gets up. It's actually a couple of different people, of course. They've got sunglasses on. Everybody's got to wear sunglasses or some type of eyewear in the Duke's gang. And... I, the, clearly, the Duke's gang buys into the legend and the hype of, you know, capital S Snake, capital P Pliskin, because <laughs> he is unarmed. He is alone, as we established in the previous minute. <laughs> For some reason, his shirt is off, and yet they're all nervous. They're all got their weapons focused intently on him. They're all scared of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's kind of a uh, kind of a very interesting scene because of, you know, obviously. Uh, you kind of wonder why was his shirt taken off? Uh, you know, is it just to expose this uh, this fantastic tattoo that you know that he has there of the snake that's on his chest? Because I don't really see what the rationale of uh, you know taking off a shirt is, other than give uh, that uh, snake a little bit of a, an appearance there. Yeah, maybe we, we, maybe we couldn't give come up with one with our previous guest either, other than just you know, hey, let's get Kurt Russell's shirt off. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, and of course, it uh, you know it is a uh, it's a great tattoo. So obviously, you know, need to show it off. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think John Carpenter once said in an interview that that was ba- uh, Snake Plissken was based on a guy he knew that had a tattoo, 
that of course uh, the tail uh, went down to the lower regions and of course said that the guy could move that tattoo at will. So I always kind of felt that was kind of the implication there with Snake Plissken too, that he is a bit of a sex fiend if he chooses to do so. Yeah, and and supposedly, according to John Carpenter, the guy's name actually was Plissken. And it's a great name, and I think if you have a name like that, that's the kind of cred that you need is to have you know, a tattoo like that. Right. So then we do get to the president, played by Donald Pleasance, hung up on the wall again here with the, the Duke's incredible aim just narrowly missing him. And I gotta say that I always heard him as saying you are hey number one Mm. and he is saying hey number one but if you watch the movie with the subtitles on the subtitles say that he's saying you are a number one Mm -hmm. and of course this is quoting uh new york new york the song made famous by frank sinatra and in that song frank sinatra says a number one not hey number one well that is that is interesting i actually never caught that before i do know that the Remember Carpenter saying one time that uh, Nick Castle, who wrote the uh, co-wrote the script with him, kind of had a peculiar sense of humor, and of course he was the one that uh, came up with the idea of having um, the theme to American Bandstand be the song <laughs> that's playing on Cabby's uh, tape throughout the film. Right. So I wonder if this kind of reference to uh, a number one, and uh, as you're saying with maybe Frank Sinatra in New York, New York is in some ways just kind of like a, a subtle in-joke uh, about New York City anyway. Yeah, and I, I mean, and even just, it's, it's such great subtle humor that that's what the Duke is making him say. I mean, the Duke has been really built up as this major gang leader, and what is he doing to torture the president? He's making him <laughs> quote New York, New York. I, I, just know, <laughs> I, just, I imagine being in the theater in 1981 and seeing this movie and the theater just absolutely cracking up when that's what they see happens. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it it is uh, that kind of eccentric humor. I think what's really makes the film because, of course, uh, it could just be another kind of dark uh, dystopian movie, which it is. But at the same time, I think these little eccentricities that you have throughout that uh, just make the film such a delight. And so, as far as uh, how the president's reacting here, I mean, he he is most certainly not defiant. He is absolutely terrified, and. He has been completely broken in a matter of less than 12 hours. This is the president <laughs> of the United States. And basically, he's trying not to cry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, he's been uh, through you know, a tremendous ordeal. Not only you know, has he whatever kind of day he started off with, but he's uh, you know, traveling uh, on an international flight, finds his plane um, hijacked, and then, of course, crashing into a building of well, him getting out with a pod right at the nick of time. But he's been through all this harrowing ordeal, had his finger uh, chopped off by, you know, madmen, And of course, now he finds himself tortured. So uh, in that way, it is kind of a harrowing ordeal that he has to deal with. You kind of wonder how the president even kind of makes it through the film. And following up on um, my comment about the subtle humor in it, Isaac Hayes actually said that when they were filming this scene, and he's up there stammering and saying, hey, number one, over and over again. <laughs> Isaac Hayes had trouble getting through the scene because he kept cracking up at, <laughs> at, Don, at Donald Pleasant's performance. Well, I mean, yeah, and of course, uh, you could just uh, see, you know, Isaac Hayes was always such a very intense uh, you know, actor anyway that you wouldn't think he would be very, uh, um, you know, very flappable in that way. 
but of course with Pleasance, I mean, I think it's such a, uh, he's so intense there. And of course, if you look uh, at that moment very carefully, I mean, his eyes, is, his eyes are bulging. He has his, his eyebrows are fluttering in that moment. There is just kind of a really kind of big intensity, but there's kind of an absurdity to the situation too, by what he's having to say and so forth. So I think it, uh, it ends up making for a really, uh, you know, great moment there. Absolutely. I, I like how, um, uh, one bit about Brain in this minute, I like how Brain refers to Snake as that Pliskin. <laughs> and, because it's, you know, he's still playing both sides. He's trying to make it seem as if he doesn't know him. Like, oh, that guy, that Pliskin, whoever he was, he said something about a time limit or something. He's 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 playing dumb. And the, the problem is the guy's nickname is Brain. Mm-hmm. And he's kept around by the Duke because he's smart and he knows how to do stuff. And I just don't think the Duke is fully buying Brain's. Uh, oh, gee, I don't know. Act at this moment. No, I think uh, I think especially uh, right at the very uh, beginning when uh, the Duke is uh, first introduced and then uh, reappears at the uh, at the train yard where uh, Pliskin first tries to. Uh, um, get the president, and of course, uh, that's when uh, Brain and Maggie arrive at the same time. And I think right from that moment, the Duke is uh, very suspicious of just the timing of it. What is Brain and Maggie doing there? Because really, they have no reason to be there. So right. I think in that moment, where uh, when he reappears and he's uh, you know torturing the president, I don't think uh, the Duke uh, believes Brain at all. But at the same time, he needs. Uh, he needs that uh, map to get across the bridge, so he has to use him. Right. So I think Isaac Hayes, uh, you know, his character very much knows what he's doing, and uh, but he uses people as long as he needs them, and of course, uh, you know, quickly discards him, you know, afterwards. I think there's a bit of acting here with the brain, also where he's trying to convince his boss of something. And he's not do he can't really do a great job of it in this moment. I think this is there's a couple of different sentiments of him trying to really tread lightly here, knowing mm-hmm. he's kind of in trouble. But at the same time, he does want to kind of convince him to be like, you know, there is this other bigger picture going on here. And I do have a sense enough that there's this other context at play that we probably should pay attention to, you know, separate from just the, the self-preservation issue going on, there is this other larger issue and he does believe in that. And he does need to convince the Duke of that, but he just isn't doing a great job of it because I think there's all this other context at play. And so when the Duke kind of responds like that's bullshit, you know, it's crap like this, you know, the time limit isn't meaningful here. Mm-hmm. And that also makes sense from from a leadership perspective, because this is a guy who's running a huge part of the prison that he's in. You know, he's incredibly street smart. He's not getting a very compelling argument in this moment. And he's having a really good time. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he doesn't want to, like, bust up the party. So I can very much see that you know, brain is not doing a great job of, of making a compelling argument to, to take a, a slightly different tact here, even though they really should, because it, you know, does kind of affect everybody. Well, you think about it just in the way that brain is first introduced when of course, uh, snake Pliskin appears and of course recognizes him from the old days, of, uh, knowing him as Harold Hellman, that right from the beginning, you find out that brain really doesn't, uh, handle, um, 
you know, doesn't really handle uh, nervous situations very well. Because, of course, he was supposed to help him out in this robbery. But then uh, when Pliskin was late, he got nervous and fled. And, of course, when Pliskin starts putting pressure on him to, uh, to work with him and threatens to blow, it, blow his brains out, this, you know, is that really going to happen? Or is it just because, you know, uh, brain really can't handle, you know, that type of stress? So it makes mm-hmm. you wonder if uh, that's just one of his flaws. And, of course, when he tries to uh, convince the Duke of this information, he just doesn't really do a good job because, of course, all these uh, thoughts that are kind of running through his mind about what the Duke could possibly do to him. Mm-hmm. So I, I think uh, his uh, own his own stress and his own nervous energy, I think, is kind of the brain's undoing. In some ways, he thinks too much, just mm. like just like when he gets blown up, you know, in the uh, ending scene going over the bridge. He's so confident that it has to be this way. And of course, that's his undoing there. Right. Mm. Molly, I got to call out here. We've got in our in my new thing I'm keeping track of. We've got one more eye twitch from the duke in this minute (laughs) add another one to the count so what so what is the ongoing count of the eye twitches uh let me see with the eye twitch in this minute we're up to uh five eye twitches total so far oh and so yeah so i guess that's in only about what less than you know 10 minutes of screen time oh yeah you already have already have that many yeah i mean not even he's probably been on screen for maybe three four minutes so far total (laughs) Yeah, it is kind of it is kind of amazing how uh, Isaac Hayes and Donald Pleasance are you know so well known for this movie. But if you really think about how much screen time they actually have, I know particularly at Pleasance, he really doesn't have uh, much screen time in the movie. But at the same time, since the present is kind of the focal point, you know, you end up kind of uh, uh, finding the character to be much more memorable than you know probably you would otherwise. Right. We had a long stretch where. Uh, the president wasn't on screen at all, and I'm, the Duke isn't even introduced until minute fifty something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know uh, you know Pleasance. I think was at the time he made it was really kind of surprised, you know, that uh, Carpenter wanted him for the role anyway because he thought he was completely uh, not suitable for it. You know, being a uh, British actor, right? But of course, it it, it works in, in this kind of odd universe. Why why shouldn't the president be British? In some ways, it just it makes. Uh, no sense, but perfect sense at the same time. Yeah, it's another one of those things that is not explained within the movie, and you don't really care that's not explained within the movie. And, and John Carpenter had some stuff in the background uh, as he was developing the script, but I only know that because I've been researching for this yeah. show. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting, especially today when you have so many films that want to uh, fill in all the backstories for right. all their characters. And of course, you have these long trilogies where you know every uh, inch of that but in escape from new york you really just kind of have to fill in all those gaps uh, yourself i mean uh, carpenter was not really somebody that was going to give you that information in some ways i think because he doesn't really find it to be that important what's important is in the moment and you kind of get to know all these characters you know through all the kind of the action and the stress that they're under in the uh, the main plot of the narrative yeah, if this movie were to be made today, we would end up with a prequel, you know, the president, you know, how he became to be, you know, the rise to power of the Escape from New York president or something. Yeah, and I think that's why uh, with movies like Escape from New York, you can have a situation like this where we have a minute by minute analysis because you actually have stuff to discuss or ponder why does this happen in a particular scene when you have all those things uh, connected for you. It's not, uh, I don't think it's nearly as uh, stimulating that way. 
Yeah, and just to um, uh, we would have covered this way, way back at the beginning of the show, so no one probably even remembers me mentioning this, but the couple of things that John Carpenter has talked about when when coming up with the president, sort of based on being a right-wing ideologue of the 1980s, and uh, if Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher were to have had a kid. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it is interesting because, of course, uh, this movie, I think I remember seeing the interview where he talks about how he, how he uh, wrote it during the time of uh, Watergate and, of course, right. all of the tension uh, that was going on in the Nixon administration. And everybody was very, uh, um, very against the president in so many different ways. And, of course, uh, this movie... Uh, really doesn't really look, I don't think, very fondly on the the president. Of course, particularly at the end. I mean, he is kind of an asshole, you know. At the at the end, I mean, right. he he's very cold. He really only cares about uh, you know how he looks on screen. He's primping himself. Where you know, Pliskin is like in some ways kind of like one of those old uh, you know noir detectives. You know, the last bit of conscience, and he's uh, somebody who, of course. Uh, is thinking about the deaths of Maggie and Brain and Cabby, even though he, he would never utter this. But at the same time, you can tell those are things that kind of weigh on him. And of course, that's why he uh, ends up, at least in my view, um, you know, at the end of the movie, uh, playing a trick on the president by switching the tapes. Right. Well, so I think there's that, a, oh, I'm so sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no, no. No, finish your thought. No, it's done. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I was just going to say there's something very uh, archetypical about casting a British actor uh, as the president. And, you know, for one, we do have, you know, some particular laws in terms of, you know, being uh, American citizen and being born on the soil and, and whatnot. And but also, you know, America being a former colony of England. I think it's kind of interesting to have a president who, you know, has a British accent. So I think that there's this. A uh, very mm, subliminal sort of sense for an American audience to have a somewhat portly British cowardly gentleman at the helm and being somewhat, you know, un-American. And, you know, we have this very, you know, idealized sense of, of what a president should be, quote unquote, or yeah, uh, American leadership should look like no matter what type of, you know, uh, political orientation you come from. So I think that there's a play on that. And especially, you know, given the, the this came out in the early 80s, I think that this is a lot of shorthand in getting him the casting that they did. Yeah. No, I, I, that's actually a really interesting idea that I had never really thought about before. But I mean, by having, uh, having the president be British, you do kind of have a hearkening back to uh, America's roots in, in Britain. I also think if you kind of connect the film uh, to another film of the same time period, uh, Blade Runner, mm. where of course in the opening shots of Blade Runner and you see all of these uh, transnational corporations and how American and Japanese culture have kind of melded together, especially in that time period where uh, you had such the uh, foreign car influence, um, so much more international money into the American economy. It also kind of makes you wonder, even in John Carpenter's universe, uh, by having a non-native-born citizen as being the president of the United States, is also maybe kind of a subtle comment on uh, America, you know, getting uh, intermingled with the uh, you know other uh, foreign powers. Mm. 
I don't know. It's a bit of a stretch. I mean, Carpenter, in some respects, is not a very political filmmaker, at least overtly. I mean, probably the most political film he ever made was um, They Live, uh, which is a great sci-fi film with Roddy, uh, Roddy Piper, the wrestler. Yep. And of course, in that one, you have a lot of discussion about class and uh, these uh, kind of the Reaganite uh, people of the time period being aliens underneath these masks, uh, you know, these uh, faces that they're wearing. So in that way, you know, Carpenter is not very political, but at the same time, he isn't, he is somebody who has a, a point of view. And I think it kind of subtly comes out in his movies, Escape from New York included. I mean, even something as superficial as casting an actor who's bald. I mean, since 18, 18- 40 maybe Dwight Eisenhower is the only bald president that America has had in the you know in the 170 180 years hmm. since then you know yeah. so e- even something as simple as that yeah I think and especially uh, in a time period where you don't have as many um, like today of course you have so many athletes and action stars that are bald but still in the 80s you know seeing a man with no ha- uh, hair kind of makes him less masculine in some way and I think in that way it kind of um, makes the president more effeminate. The the film seems to have a lot of uh, fun time kind of torturing him and uh, kind of at his expense. So in in that way, I think uh, it is kind of an interesting uh, choice to have the president be bald because Mm -hmm. it could could have easily been some really boring um, Hollywood uh, actor of the same time period. You think about somebody very stoic uh, like um, Cliff Robertson, who does the is the president and escape from LA. Right. Um, if you could have an actor of that generation playing that role, it becomes kind of a, just another um, captured politician. But I think with Pleasance by being so eccentric uh, looking at the same time, having this kind of intensity, I think it makes the president, you know, such more of a memorable character than he would be otherwise. Mm-hmm. Sure. Compare him to the hair that our star has. Look at, you know, Kurt Russell's yeah. hair is amazing in this. Movie. Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> well, even Romero, I mean. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh Romero has the best hair. I mean, <laughs> uh, uh, Romero, in some ways, because I rewatched uh, the film uh, over the weekend, uh, the film, that's probably my favorite character in the entire film, just because it, it it's such a delight. And of course, he looks like uh, kind of the cross between the Bride of Frankenstein and uh, some punk rocker. <laughs> and of course, that that moment that's slightly, um, uh, I guess it's not in not in this scene, but in the scene later on where, of course, he retrieves the tape. And of course, he has that one little hand gesture that he does in front of the president, <laughs> Yes, <laughs> which, of course, is, uh, I think, just one of the most delightful uh, moments in the movie. <laughs> well, I just wanted to call out a couple of fashion statements here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we had been discussing uh, there was a gentleman from last minute uh, who had one of the uh, eyeglass, you know, he had like kind of the Mexican blanket has the mace, you know, has one of the uh, eyeglass um, lenses popped out. And we were talking about how he had like a bath mat. Yes. (laughs) Chest plate. Well, it kind of looks like the Duke has some type of uh, arm gauntlet that's kind of made out of the same material to me. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Which I hadn't noticed before. And I hadn't noticed that Romero has painted red nails 
which makes me love him even more. <laughs> <laughs> and it makes you wonder, has, uh, has Romero been wearing this, uh, this blonde wig of his, uh, you know, before he's given it to the president? Because you know he's the one behind it. So uh, maybe the red nails and the, uh, the blonde wig and so forth, uh, they seem to be uh, uh, Romero's, at least in that scene. I don't know. I, to me, when uh, it's revealed that the president is wearing that blonde wig, I just uh, I, it makes me laugh out loud every single time. Because, you know, if you've been watching the movie in 1981, it'd be the last thing that you would expect, you know, in that scene. And it ends up being kind of a you know, really uh, humorous moment. Sure. Oh, yeah. But I mean, uh, all I mean, even at the uh, the beginning of the minute uh, that we're looking at today, which is just with the uh, the way that these uh, guys that have Pliskin uh, on guard, you know, all look like they're rejects from uh, Road Warrior. But at the <laughs> same, but at the same time, they look like people who didn't quite make the casting cut for uh, Road Warrior. And of course, you have, <laughs> you have the guy that has the uh, the purple. Uh, I like the purple glasses. Yeah, we called them out in the last minute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and of course the, uh, the chest plate that he has there, you know, on the, on the, uh, on the necklace. And I wonder what's that, with the bayonet that he has, cause it's kind of this makeshift bayonet, but looks like it has like a long nail. And of course it's ragtag, uh, team that has to just use everything that they can, you know, come up with. But, uh, it's, it's those kind of wardrobe choices, uh, you know, really give the film, I think a kind of a unique flair. Well, speaking of resources, this is something about this scene that I always found to be very interesting in that, and and I don't know, if they've got, you know, an oil well, maybe they have some sort of a bullet farm as well. But I find it very interesting that the Duke feels comfortable just messing around with the gun and shooting it off because there's a limited amount of bullets, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, I never thought of that. That's a good point. Yeah, you wonder where all these bullets are going to come from. It's like in those, uh, you know, old westerns where you know they have unlimited bullets and some big uh, final confrontation. You wonder, like, how did this happen mm-hmm. when they and when they never reload? So yeah, you would think like the bullets would be worth more than the oil there because at least you know how the oil is produced. We have no idea how these bullets are created. Right. There's something so bourgeois in this world this so much power that you have this limited resource in this place and it's okay to just mess around with torturing the president in this particular manner. Yeah. And you, and also you would wonder like why uh, these prisoners are also uh, trashing out this place. It's going to be the place they're going to be inhabiting for how many years now. So Mm -hmm. in that way, it doesn't really do them any good either. So I think you have all these characters who are not really doing what's in their best interest. So I think we've reached about the end of this minute. Uh, The Duke is asking (laughs) the president, what have I taught you? And this is that you are the Duke of New York. You are a number one. And he really kind of forces it out here. I don't know if you guys remember the Star Trek episodes, the Star Trek Next Generation, where Picard gets, <laughs> he takes, uh, he's been captured and he's being tortured. I know what you're going to say. The lights. Yeah. And he's like, there are four lights. <laughs> yep. And it just totally reminds me of this moment, kind of reverse, <laughs> like not really a triumphant moment. Like it is with Picard of like, I still have my mind and you're not going to take it from me. The mind's already gone here for this guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, Molly, we can't count this as breaking the streak because that's a TV show, not a movie. So uh, oh. not breaking the streak of you mentioning things that I have never seen. 
can't count it. <laughs> someday, someday, yeah. Eric, we're going to get on board. It's going to be a magical moment. <laughs> but I mean, this uh, the scene with uh, him saying the uh, A number one. Of course, he just he is just kind of shaking when he says it. So I mean, it has you know such such an intense moment. And of course, when he uh, says this remark again at the end of the film, it uh, has much more of a there's a cathartic nature to it because it's. Like you have the president's already gone through this ordeal and now he can uh, repay the favor. Well, one more time, if you could let everybody know where to find you out on the interwebs and uh, your uh, Donald Pleasance project. Yeah, I, the, uh, the, the website is The Man with the Hypnotic Eye. Uh, the website is uh, pleasance.com. And of course, uh, hopefully uh, one of these days uh, the book will be finally done. And I'm sure when it's done, it will be available through uh, Amazon and so forth. In, in the meantime, let me give a, a plug out to, there is an uh, interesting book called um, The Films of Donald Pleasance by a man by the name of Christopher Gulo, who is a friend. And of course, uh, it's a nice look at uh, his, uh, his filmography as well. So I would definitely recommend people who maybe only know Pleasance uh, from Escape from New York, uh, give, the, uh, give the book a look. And I think we'll find out that he's somebody whose uh, career ranged in uh, so many different genres from westerns to sci-fi films to horror films and went from the art house to um, uh, mainstream Hollywood to uh, Italian exploitation films. Hmm. So in that way, I think you kind of trace uh, the history of film in the 20th century to Donald Pleasance. So, I mean, he is definitely an actor. I think people um, should try to find out more about. Cool. Cool. We really appreciate your time and coming on. This was really fascinating. Well, thank you. And um, it was a pleasure uh, to be here. I mean, it's a great film and I hope uh, I wish you guys uh, all the success uh, with your project. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you for joining us for Minute 66. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at NY Minute Pod. Also, we've got a Facebook group, Brains Library, the Escape from New York Minute Hangout. And as always, I really want to thank Brad Mendenhall, who is our intrepid producer. He is strong yet silent, <laughs> and he's just really wonderful, and he keeps us on track, and we very much appreciate it. And with that, be on time, stay out of the sewers, and we'll meet you on the other side of the wall. Mm-hmm.